In uh, 1966, a, a book was published that has become famous in the years since. It was called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Have you ever heard of that book? The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Uh, in that book, the argument was made that, uh, especially in the post-World War II period, that in post-World War I, actually, period, that the, um, the normal, traditional ways of seeing life and human problems uh, was beginning to fade away, and a new, very psychological, very therapeutic way of describing human beings and the problems that we have was, was becoming dominant. Therefore, the triumph of the therapeutic. Psychology became forefronted, and many of the other aspects of human life became backgrounded. Now, I don't know if you agree that we've experienced that. I know 1966 was a long time. It was before some of us came into the world. Uh, not all of us, however. But for all of us, 1966 was a long time ago. Uh, do you think that the author of that book was correct? Has the psychological and the therapeutic gotten too much of our attention uh, in the years of the last century? Uh, that's for you to think about and ponder. Maybe you have never thought about that question. It's okay if you haven't. What I want to say tonight is whether or not that book is true, and I won't make a judgment, but I will say this. The Bible was taking a deep dive into the human soul long before the triumph of the therapeutic. In fact, long before any of modern psychology emerged, the Bible was plumbing the depths of the human heart, trying to figure out its various cases, its various conditions, and the various means of remedying those conditions. The Bible's no stranger to it. In fact, someone as old as John Calvin, who wrote in the 1500s, said about the Psalms, it is an anatomy of all parts of the soul. That's what he said about the Psalms. The Psalms are an anatomy that is a map of every part of the human soul. It tells you all the different things that can go wrong, all the different things that can go right, and how to find your way out of them, at least from a strongly God-centered and spiritual perspective. Well, I'm not here tonight to try to undo uh, modern psychology or modern therapy. I'm actually a believer in a lot of it. However, I will say this. If you discount the spiritual aspect of human life, you'll never understand yourself and you'll never be able to find the relief you really need, which is why we still need the Bible and why actually the Bible still rings truer in many cases than many of the modern theories about what goes wrong with human beings. Do you want me to make that case for you tonight? Uh, we're looking here in verses 25 to 32 at the sorrowing heart. David is writing about God's word and his relationship with God based on his word. And here he comes to a common experience that he had, and many others have had, of feeling a tremendous amount of sorrow, you might even call it depression, that is set in over his life. And he shows us three things. If you look at your bulletin, I want to talk you through them. First of all, he shows us some of the possible causes of his sorrow and ours. Secondly, he helps us see some helpful pathways when we fall into sorrow. And lastly, he gives us a description of what it's like when God lifts the sorrow, which is God can do and does do. God is a lifter of his people's sorrows. Do you all believe that? Um, and, you know, again, not discounting many of the other ways that we might uh, seek relief from the various disorders that we face. God is a lifter of sorrow. In a very, very profound way. 
Let's look first of all at the causes. If you look at your Bible, uh, verses 25 to 28, uh, David first describes in two different ways what he's facing, and then he gives us maybe some of the reasons why he's there. Uh, Notice, first of all, in verses 25 and 28, he describes it. And in both cases, he says it's a problem with his soul. His soul. Uh, Somebody tell me, what is a soul? You see it there in verse 25 and 28. What is a soul? That's right. Beautiful, Beautiful answer. And I think, you know, most of us probably get that right although we should admit that not many people or more and more people don't believe in that idea or or don't accept at least the fullness that we would accept as Christians of that idea it's the inner person you can call it heart you can call it soul you can call it spirit sometimes the Bible calls it mind Uh, nearly always those things are roughly equivalent they are the inside essence of who you are Yes, sewn in together with your body by God's design, body and soul are supposed to go together. And yet we can distinguish between the body and the soul. The soul is the inner part, the part uh, that when we die goes to be with the Lord, goes to be judged by God, either to heaven or to hell. The part that at the resurrection of Christ will be reunited with the body so that all God's people will be body and soul together with God in heaven like Jesus is. Or body and soul will be in hell, in judgment like all those who uh, will go there, as it describes in Revelation chapter 21. The soul is the inner essence of the human person. Now look at how David describes his soul. And it's a little surprising because this is David who's been talking nonstop so far about how much he loves God and how much he loves the Bible and how he can't wait for God to teach him more. And yet, what does it say? My soul clings to the dust. Verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Can you relate? You don't have to say it out loud. You can if you want to. I think I'll say I can relate. I can relate. My soul clings to the dust. Think about what that might mean. Uh, Where in the Bible do you see dust being used? Can you think about that? Creation. We were made out of the dust, lifted from dust to fellowship with God, so we came from it. It's almost like he's going back to the way it was before he was lifted out of it. Where else? Plagues. Plagues. Yeah, that's right. Moses, the dust was thrown in the air and the dust became gnats, right? Isn't that how the dust was used in the plagues? Remember what God says to the serpent after the fall in the garden? On your belly you shall go. The dust shall be your food. You shall eat the dust all the days of your life. So in other words, is dust usually ever really a positive thing? No. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, Uh, The serpent can find its food in the dust, but the seed of the woman, human beings, can never stand to be degraded in this manner. Many people are of the earth and earthy, and they never lament the fact that their lives are enmeshed within the dust. But people who are heaven-born, people who are soaring to heaven because they've been given God's grace, grieve at the very thought of being fastened to this world and trapped by its sorrows or by its pleasures. I think Spurgeon hits it right on the head. David is speaking with a renewed heart, 
a redeemed heart. He's a believer. He loves the Lord. And therefore, it distresses him even more to know that his soul is in this condition where he feels like all he has to live on is the dust of the earth. In verse 28, he gives a little bit more color to it. He says, my soul is melting away. We can understand this in Florida, can't we? Things melt away when? In the heat, right? Have you ever seen something melt in the heat? My kids, uh, from time to time, will drop a crayon out of the van. Probably came from back there in the, the kids' bucket. And they'll drop it out of the van in our driveway, and you'll come out the next day, and what will happen to the crayon? It's just a spot of whatever color. It has been melted completely down under the intense heat. David feels like a heat is, is coming down on his soul. Not his physical body, but his soul. So much so, so that his very soul feels like it is melting down. Interestingly, in Psalm 22, which is a psalm that spoke prophetically of Christ and his sufferings on the cross. That's the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in that psalm, says, my soul melts within me. So the experience of Jesus on the cross was this kind of soul-melting, dust-eating experience that David himself faced. David's example reminds us that being a Christian does not make you immune from distempers of the soul. Did y'all hear me? Y'all probably wanted to hear a different answer than that coming to church. And I, and I do too often. I, I would rather it be that God would deliver us from all this kind of stuff. Right now. Fully. But it isn't the case. The souls of people are very complex things. There's a huge spiritual aspect to it. There is also, of course, psychological aspects to it, and there is what we might call today psychosomatic aspects to it, where psychosomatic means your body and your soul are, are together, and then they both sort of interact with each other, and then that's very true, right? I mean, the, if you don't get sleep, it messes with your mind. It messes with your soul, <laughs> your, your inner person. And it's very complex, and there's many different kinds of cases, many causes, many solutions but here, David is every step of the way not discounting the centrality of the spiritual cause and the spiritual solution to his problem. He is a, he is a believer, and yet he is experiencing soul struggle. And in his soul struggle, he is not saying, I want to go away from God, or I want God to get away from me. Instead, he is going to the Lord, asking the Lord to meet him at his point of need with all the things that God has given to him in his word. Do you notice how many times he mentions the word in verses 25 to 28? You count them. How many times? I got one, two, three, four, five. Every time he describes his struggle, he also gives God a plea to meet him with his words, riches, and treasures. In fact, he does it for every possible cause of his soul distress. And, and I do think in those verses you can kind of get a hint as to why David thinks he's in soul distress. First of all, look at verse 25. There's a clue, and I'll, I'll just quiz you here. 
Verse 25, what does it seem like is wrong with David? His soul clings to the dust. Why? Right, he says, give me life according to your word. So he has this sense that he's dead. Uh, he's dead to God's ways. Uh, maybe he just feels like he's going through a dry period of his spiritual life. Maybe he feels like he's gotten off course. We don't know exactly what it is, but anyway, he feels dead. He feels separated from God in some way. Sometimes we can feel that way even when we aren't. Sometimes when we feel this, that way, we are. Sometimes we can't tell the difference. Either way, it bothers the soul deeply when you're a Christian. It really will bother your soul. And David is bringing that to God. In verse 26, we get another clue as to why he's suffering. When I told of my ways, you answered me. One translation says, when I gave a full account of all that I've done, you answered me. Now, why would it distress David to give a full account of all he had done? Have you ever done that? It's called self-examination, and it's never for the faint of heart. In fact, when you're in a depressed state, I don't recommend that you examine yourself during that period of your life. Save that for another time. Um, there is a way, by the way, that you can over-examine yourself. I need to speak for a minute to all the introverts in the room. Y'all with me? Uh, you can easily be obsessed with looking into yourself, navel-gazing, we call it, where all you're doing all the time is just trying to discern what, what you've done wrong, what you've done right, how you're feeling, how you're not feeling, this, that, and the other, what, how you can change, how you can not change. You can overdo that. I don't know whether David has overdone it here, but the fact is he's done it, and he doesn't feel very good which is usually always the, the case whenever we examine ourselves. Now, to the extroverts in the room, <laughs> let me say, you need to examine yourself. Um, going your whole life and not looking at what your soul is really like is not going to help you. you. You need to be honest. You need to be open. You need to learn how to traverse the terrain of your soul. Get, a, get somebody who's a friend of yours that knows how to do that and let them help you. Uh, it's important. But you're probably not going to feel your best as you do it. And yet David, notice what he does. He doesn't feel his best, but he goes to God. And he says, God, teach me your statutes. Verse 27, he says, help me understand your ways. In fact, make me understand, he says. So David is sorrowful because he feels so dull of thought. You know, he feels slow. I don't understand, God. I would meditate on your wondrous works, but I don't get it. Then he says in verse 28, strengthen me. I'm just plain weak. I mean, notice how many different possible reasons there are for David's soul distress. There are many. Um, I don't think we're just reading too much into it or speculating. David is straight up telling us in poetic language all the different reasons why. He feels like his soul is clinging to dust and he's melting. But at every point, he says, God, I know that the solutions are at least in large part found in your word. Bring your word to me. Now, that makes sense. If all spiritual depression, the spiritual aspect of depression, is rooted in unbelief, well, guess what comes when you hear the word? Faith. Faith comes by hearing the word. And so... What unbelief needs, the medicine that our unbelief needs, is a more dose, a greater dose, 
a greater application, perhaps, of God's word to our need. David understands that. See what I mean? This is way before psychologists ever entered the scene, and David has this profound experience of his own soul. And he knows what God is doing in his soul, and he's asking God to meet him. There are many different ways that a Christian can go off path, that a Christian can feel distressed within. And yet every one of those ways, no matter what the causes are, you can always find resources in Scripture. And it's never a bad thing to pray as you're struggling, as, of course, we see David doing verse after verse after verse. My soul clings to the dust. My soul melts away. Teach me according to your word. Now, let's look at the second thing, which is the pathways in sorrow. What do you do? Have you ever heard uh, what you do when you're lost in the woods? What are you supposed to do if you're lost in the woods? Yeah, okay, so I've heard lots of right answers. One option, if you don't know anything, is to just stay where you are, right? If you don't know any landmarks, you can't see any landmark, just stay where you are. Uh, of course, you know why that is, right? Um, because hopefully somebody's going to happen upon you at some point, and you're not going to continue to get yourself more and more lost or wearing yourself out by running in circles. But if you can find a landmark of some kind, such as a river, you should find that and follow it. It's a fixed reference point. Maybe it's at night. You can use the stars, find your north, follow your fixed reference point. One time that happened to me when I was a kid. My brother and I got lost in the woods. And it took us a long time to get home, much to my Meemaw's displeasure and probably near heart attack. This is my mom's mom. And the, finally, the way that we got out is we found the creek that ran through our whole little neighborhood down there in South Mulberry. And we got a hold of the creek and we walked it all the way back. I can't believe we'd gotten that lost in the woods. I want you to notice what David is doing. In verses 29 to 31, he's finding his fixed reference point, which for him is God. And once he finds his fixed reference point, he then sees the different pathways that he's able to take that are positive, that are productive in his sorrow rather than counterproductive. Now, we got to say, there are a lot of counterproductive ways to deal with sorrow. Can you name a few? Justifying it, yeah, could be, well, this is, this is good. I want to, yeah, th this, is, this is the way I am. There's no changing it. That's one thing. What else? Wallowing, wallowing in it. There, and a lot of times there can be a lot of self-pity involved in wallowing in it. My soul clings to the dust, and yeah, that makes sense because dust is all I'll ever have. Right? Anger, Anger yep. Could be towards people, could be towards yourself, could be towards God, or all of them. What else? Sweep it under the rug, right? Hiding, pretending like it's not there, uh, bottling it up, right? All these things can be very, very counterproductive. In fact, nearly all of them take us further away from what God is trying to do in 
soul struggles. Did you know that? God is trying to do something through soul struggles. Do you believe that? God is trying to do something in your life in soul struggles. David understands it. And so he finds his fixed reference point. Notice how in verses 29 to 31, he is consistently going to prayer. He's going to resolution. And then he's going back to prayer again. He prays, put false ways away from me. Graciously teach me your law. Then he resolves to do something himself. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. Then he prays again. Let me not be put to shame. He's going to God, praying, asking God's help, and then taking his stand where God has told him to stand. And when he does that, there emerges some positive pathways that he began to take and that we also can take in our different soul struggles. Let me, let me just work you through these. There's a few that I find here. In verse 29, the first uh, pathway that is positive is self-denial. Self-denial. He says, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Now, this does not mean that every time we experience sorrow or struggle of any kind or any sort of depression, that it's because God is getting us back for our sins. I'm not trying to say that at all. But what I am saying is that no matter what you're going through that's bad, whether it's external or internal, it is always a good thing to repent. Always. Is it a day ending in why? Repent and believe. It is always a good thing to repent. That's what David is doing there. Put away my false ways. Put away all false ways. Do you hear that? David's asking God to do it. He knows he can't do it himself, but he's asking God to do it because he wants it to be done. And I find one of the things God is doing that he wants productively to happen in my life when I'm struggling is God wants to bring me to a place where I am willing to deny my sinful self. Jesus said there, is, there are three things involved in being with me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Three steps to being with Jesus, if you will. Self-denial is the first one. And oftentimes, we don't get to a place of self-denial until we feel some kind of burden of the soul or burden of the heart. Oftentimes, that drives us to a place where we say, God, I know that I don't know how to run my life. I don't even know how to run my own heart. Put away from me all the sinful ways. Teach me the right ways. Be within me, strengthening me to walk in the way that you want me to walk. Self-denial. The second great pathway is the pathway of redirection, which you see there in the next uh, couple of verses. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. He had just said his soul clings to the dust. His soul is melting away. He's asking God to teach him his word, to put his words in front of him. But now he's saying what he's going to resolve to do. In the Christian life, 
It's never either A, God does it, or I do it. In the Christian life, it's usually always both. Right? There, there is what God does, which, uh, without which we can do nothing. But then there is always what I do as God is doing. It's, it's what Paul says in Philippians 2. God works in me and in you to will, to want to obey God, and to do, to actually obey God. And so therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. David is, has found his fixed point of reference and he says, look, I'm doing all this praying about you showing me your word, but now I'm just going to say it. I am taking, I am staking my claim. I'm going to put your ways in front of me. I'm determined. I, I'm sorrowful. I feel like I'm eating dust and my soul is a crayon on Stan's driveway. And yet here I stand. It's your word for me. That's my way. And I will cling to it. So at some point you got to get there. I found that to be the only way to navigate through soul struggle, to get to that place at some point where you're just going to stubbornly take your stand with God because God's worth being stubborn for. Because, by the way, he's stubborn for you, and he was stubborn for me. Look at the resolve. I have chosen the way. I have set your rules before me. I heard something this week that convicted me a lot, and it was um, someone whose name you would recognize who, who said uh, in an interview, the Holy Spirit isn't interested in answering prayers that we are not willing, how did she say it, that we are not willing to put forth effort towards, something like that. She said it more eloquently than that. And it convicted me. How often do I pray for things and I'm saying, you know, God, change that person's heart. Show that person the truth. And yet I'm unwilling to talk to that person. And she was saying, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't really usually work that way. He wants you to pray for it because obviously he's got to change their heart. But, you know, he wants you to talk to them. Lord, feed the hungry but I'm not willing to go feed the hungry. Well, it's the same thing with, Lord, show me your word, teach me, and I'm not willing to say, I have set your ways before me. So there's something really sanctifying about God putting within our hearts a resolve to find his word like a river that we just simply will not leave. We will follow it to the very end by his grace. That's what David does. And the last thing he does is he trusts God. He says there, um, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Let me not be put to shame. I cling to your testimonies. I, I am and that has this idea of trust. I am placing my whole life in your hands. Do not let me be put to shame. I trust that if someone seeks you, they will find you. If someone entrusts themselves to you, they will never be let down. And so, God, I'm just, I'm just laying it out there. These are productive ways to deal with sorrow. These three ways, self-denial, redirection, trust. This is very different than self-pity. Uh, it's very different than hopelessness and anger and self-condemnation and just giving up and saying, oh, well, I guess that's just who I am. This is, this is saying, God, 
I renounce my life without you, my life my own way. I endeavor with all that I am to follow your way, and I, you know what? I trust you with the outcome. That's productive. Did you know the Bible says this in Hebrews 5? The Lord Jesus, it says, this is Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, we're not going to get into the theology of that because that would take us a long time to explain how did the Son of God learn obedience. But it has to do with his human nature, of course, as a, as a man. But it said he learned obedience through his suffering, through what he suffered. That's why I said to y'all, God has something he wants to do through your soul struggles and also through your physical struggles. He's got something he wants to get done. And here is a little bit of what that is. That we might become a people who are self-denying, resolved, and trusting. Lessons that can only be won through suffering and struggle. If they were only won that way by Jesus, I think that's probably going to be the pathway for me too. All right, let's look at the last thing. This is a glorious thing because I want to tell you, God is a lifter of sorrow. God is a lifter of sorrow. Look at verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. What's the difference between if and when? <laughs> yeah, doubt. Doubt versus assurance. He doesn't say if you enlarge my heart. He could have said that. Instead, he says, when you enlarge my heart. Now, in a physical sense, an enlarged heart is not a good thing, right? Physically, you do not want an enlarged heart. But apparently, spiritually, having an enlarged heart is a beautiful thing. Describe to me what you think that is. What is an enlarged heart spiritually? Yeah, more like God's heart. So in all the ways we talked about this morning, and you know, patience, kindness, goodness, filled with God's character. What else? More capacity, yeah. More open to God and his ways. More open to learning God's ways and taking them to heart. A small heart. I mean, think about, you know, the Grinch stole Christmas. Remember that? He had this tiny little heart. And he was mean as a snake. But at the end, you know, the magic of animation. He got this big heart that was full. That's what he's talking about. God, one day, he didn't say if, he says you will. It's just a matter of when. You will enlarge my heart. And that, I mean, y'all, that is the hope that I have in any sorrow that I face. And I wonder if it's yours. That not if, but when, God will enlarge my heart. I've seen God do that in small ways and in some big ways in my life. And I know he'll do it again. I know he will not leave me in my sorrow. The thing about uh, being a Christian is you can always know that your best is yet to come.
you are, in fact, living your worst life now. That's a fact. That's not just a little cliche. That's real. You are living your worst life you'll ever live right now. It will get better eternally. Guaranteed. Not if, but when. He will enlarge your heart. And when he enlarges your heart, the cloud, the, the, the dust, the heavy heat that is melting it down to nothing, it will go away. And in that day, David says, I will run in the ways of your commandments. I will run in the direction you want me to run. Unfortunately, even though I felt God do that for me a lot of times, I still, when I get in tough situations or when I feel down, I still get to a place where I think, God, if you would just broaden my circumstances, I'd be all right. I still think that. I'm still stubborn like that. Isn't it cool that David said, if you'll broaden my heart, I'll be all right. Circumstances, you know. Change and decay all around I, I see, right? We just sang it. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Enlarge my heart, Lord. I've seen you do it before. Most of us have experienced that. If you've been with Jesus for any length of time and lived through any length of time in your life, you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, probably, in some way, in shape, or form in your life. Wasn't it wonderful when God turned your mourning into dancing? He does that. And oftentimes, it's not by the changing of the circumstance that it happens. Sometimes, actually, the circumstance doesn't change. He does it by enlarging your heart, by broadening your inner person. You'd think I wouldn't be so hard-hearted as to still think, God, if you'd just broaden my circumstances. You would think I would finally have understood that if only God would change me, I would be all right, <laughs> rather than just the stuff around me. David's example here reminds us that God is seeking through a process of time in every Christian's life to continually broaden the heart of a Christian, giving the Christian more and more capacity to receive his love and therefore more and more capacity to share his love with others and to endure like he endured for us. And oftentimes the way that God accomplishes this is by sending us through the very things that will test our hearts to begin with. You could call it the fatherly discipline of God. David is no legalist. Let me say it again. David is not a legalist. He loves the law. He's obsessed with the law. But he does not believe that his place with God is dependent on his obedience. Mm -mm. What's David's hope? The gospel. That God has given a sacrifice to reconcile him to God. That God has given his spirit to enlarge David's heart. And that not if but when he does that. David will have more opportunity to do what he really wants to do now to follow God and keep his commandments. David is no legalist. 
Sometimes uh, people avoid reading the Old Testament or they avoid reading the Psalms because they think, well, all this is just, you know, it's Old Testament stuff. It's bloody, gory, angry, do this, don't do that, kicking people's teeth in kind of stuff. That's literally from the Psalms, you know, Psalm 3. Break the teeth of the wicked, O God, you know. And everybody's like, ooh, I don't like that. I, I encourage you, get into that. Don't avoid it. Get into it. Because the saints of the Old Testament were not legalists. The saints of the Old Testament, Jesus said, saw me, and they rejoiced to see my day. They knew where it was at. David lived by grace. And so David's example here is the example for a Christian who's clinging to Jesus Christ, who's looking forward to the hope of heaven, who has the Holy Spirit within them. Anytime they find themselves in any kind of soul distemper or soul distress, don't discount the clinical. Don't discount the fact that you have a body. Don't discount that your mind works on chemicals and all that kind of stuff. There's all kinds of solutions to different problems. But please, please, please don't discount the spiritual. You are a soul that one day God will take back to himself. And so learn how to be a soul before God, which is something that modern psychology has well nigh forgotten. But we should not forget it. Because long before they started talking, saying some good things, some bad things, the Bible was talking. And it knows the human soul deeply. And it knows especially what it's like to be a human soul in the hands of an almighty God. Amen.